0: Welcome to our latest episode of Blood, Sweat and Fears, the ultimate podcast for athletes coping with the challenges of elite sport, their transition out of it and settling into life beyond it. And topically, much of our latest episode will build on the thoughts of FA president Prince William, who, in case you missed his comments, recently said that football clubs were treating players like financial assets and failing to support their mental health. Too many clubs simply drop young players if they fail to reach the requested standard, he went on to say. With no thought as to how to back them in building a new life. The Duke of Cambridge feels that instead of just being told to move on, footballers should be given key building blocks or support. A bit like the support that forms the basis of EY's personal performance programme on which this podcast is based. I'm Mark Clement. This podcast is brought to you by EY Building a Better Working World. Alongside me, my co host Scott Ward, a retired professional footballer who spent the last 10 years working in athlete welfare, leading to the creation of EY's personal performance programme. And I'm guessing, Scott, that you feel Prince William is right on the money.
1: I think he's clearly come out with some really strong comments if we're being brutally honest. Um, you know, We all must understand that football is a business um, and that football does need to be sustainable. Um, I understand that every player within the club has their value. But as Prince William has quite rightly said, they do deserve to ensure that they have the skill capabilities to go beyond football. Um, Is that being provided currently? I'm unsure. Um, We do, we are constantly um, being requested to to come and meet these players. Obviously from my personal experience, it's very different, you know, as as I've been advised on a couple of occasions, the game's changed a lot in the last 10 years, Um, but the needs and wants of people haven't. And so um, if we can, if we can ensure that players are facilitated with these social skills, um, the self awareness that everybody deserves and that that you know we take for granted beyond elite sport, um, I'm pretty sure that we're going to start to diminish those statistics that we keep reading about.
0: Yeah, you know what I love about doing this podcast, co-hosting this with you. You always play devil's advocate with yourself, don't you? You've always got the alternative perspective as well as the answer in which you're passionate.
1: Well, I think um, you know that's my job. Um, I when I created this program, clearly the driving force was football. Um, I know that my experience as a family is very unique to have the four of us in, in the professional game. Let's just explain this because we, we haven't, we're doing some podcasts we with You in know, others, obviously you're one of four footballing brothers. Yeah, that's right. That so like it's, um, it's myself, Elliot, Darren and Lee. Um, all of us have been professional footballers at any one given time. I make the joke that we played probably a thousand and one games and I played the one, so <laughs> I'm happy to be on the end, but um, it wasn't a bad one. So uh, yeah, it's um, look, football is fantastic and we can't lose sight of that. I think it's really easy for us to be negative and, um, And, you know, you you don't get tens of thousands of people turning up every week if the game was was a morbid affair. Um, But can we do more for those that are making the game what it is and and also have made the game what it is, what it was? Um, Absolutely. And, And that's one of the reasons why we've committed to this space. Well, listen, how we
0: roundly manage an athlete or player's career and help them to ease out of sport when their time is up is clearly a huge issue. It's one that Manchester United's former head of performance during the latter part, as Sir Alex Ferguson's reign, Tony Strudwick, feels very strongly about. We're going to hear from him over the course of this podcast. So, too, the former Manchester United, Everton, and France international striker, Louis Sahara will join us. And alongside Scott Knife for this episode of Blood, Sweat & Fears, former three-time Sheffield United legion United, Middlesbrough, Leicester City and England forward Brian Dean, the first ever Premier League goalscorer. And the reason that I have mentioned that, Brian, is I I wondered how it has affected your own identity, what your life would have been like post-playing if you hadn't scored that goal on the 15th of August 1992. Comes up a lot, I'm guessing.
2: Yeah, it, it, well, it comes up every year um, at the beginning of the season. I think what it means to me personally is, I remember, I remember seeing an article in a paper, and it was the first guy who had scored in the Bundesliga, and and and, and I think he'd just passed away, and I, and I thought it's pretty similar to to what I've done, and I think what it does for me is it it kind of keeps me on my toes in terms of. Um, Thinking about how I would like to be remembered, so uh, it, it's about it's about trying to keep my stands up and always kind of trying to make sure that whatever I do is positive, so that I, le- I can leave a, a a legacy for my for my children. Really, well, that's a lovely that's a
0: lovely answer and one I wasn't necessarily. Well, the, uh, I, I stand <laughs> it up
2: on my arm. I mean, it's, <laughs> do you
1: know? And but you said that, Brian. That, you know, legacy and and if you like personal brand is a topic that I don't think players really think about beyond how much money they can earn. I don't feel like it's an emotional commitment. Um, I think they're being taught at times to think about, okay, how much money can that earn me? If I do this, what do I get in return? Um, You know, Brian, which uh, hasn't been mentioned, Brian was at West Ham with my younger brother, Elliot, uh, when he was breaking through into the first team. And I always remember Elliot speaking about Brian and the way that he would look after him during training and after training. Because he's been through it, and like you said, this is about legacy. If, if you've got that expertise and you've spoken about it on the other podcasts, it's fantastic uh, to be able to pass that on to others to, to either help them have better careers or not, you know, trip over at times when you may have yourself. I mean, I
0: I guess, and this is not meant to de- in Process. any way denigrate your overall career, but if it hadn't been there. It kind of, it it gives us a peg to always remember you. So do you ever consider what life would be like as a former footballer if there wasn't that regular occurrence and marker?
2: Yeah, of course I do. But again, you know, I, I kind of have to remind myself that, you know, wherever I go, um, people remember what you've done. So you have to make sure it's how I was brought up anyway, but you have to act in a certain way. You know, you have to... Um, you Take responsibility, I think, is, is a good way of putting it, because, you know, we, we're alluding to... Well, I'm sure we'll allude to what sport actually does to you, and where you... You know, there's some times where you're right in the middle of sport, and then there's times where you're on the outside looking in. You know, hindsight, there are... Things that you wish you might have done. You wish that somebody would have been there to guide you through. You know, I, I, for me, when you know when you're coming up, you want players to not go through the same mistakes that you might have done. You want to try and their path to be smoother and more efficient than yours was. When I when I went to Norway and I was managing out there, you know, I, I took a lot of the younger players under my wing simply because. Um, they're the ones who you can affect and especially the ones who, you know, you, it, it was a real cultural melting pot. So I had players from Iceland, from Norway, France, Jamaica, Niger- uh, Nigeria, uh, Kosovo. And I think one thing that we tend not to do from that position is try and un- you've got to understand the culture. When you're building a team, and when you're talking about management, and it could be football, it could be anything, you have to try and um, you have to try and make that team work as efficiently as possible. And understanding how what what makes people tick is is going to improve your um, performance. So to
0: come back to prince williams comments and you mm. think of all those young impressionable footballers of the sort nationalities and cultural backgrounds you've just mentioned mm. can you smell the insecurity can you smell the anxiety of these guys that are trying to leave their mark on their on their passion
2: yeah but it, <laughs> it's funny because um and it, and it won't be just football but you can talk about any sport really and um there is a lot of insecurity as an athlete. Um, you know, and we are forever looking for people to tell us how we did. So. You don't get a feel for
0: it if you come off the field and you're in an easy position to identify it because you were a forward. At least yeah. you would have the self-approbation of knowing I've scored a goal. So I'm yeah, feeling- but
2: even then there was times where, you know, I'd, maybe I'd scored a couple of goals and then you pick up the paper on a Sunday and you see you've got five out of ten or six out of ten and you kind of... It's a journalist who's giving you that mark. You're the one who's played it. But you don't have the confidence to turn around and say, well, OK, I'll take that. It's a bone of contention all the time because you can't believe that somebody hasn't seen the game how you've seen it. So you always have, and this goes on, and and it leads to other things in in sport. Um, you know, you have there are people who advise you who are in and around players. Um, you know, and and sometimes they feed on these insecurities. And I think what we have to do within sport is to. Um, make players more rounded people as they come out so we're talking about things like financial literacy giving them the opportunities to actually decide for themselves not be put in a direction if you've got three options on the table then at least be able to say right you've got three options you understand the situation let's just say you're buying a car and you can pay cash you can do it on hp or you can do it I don't know, with a car loan or whatever. Give the player the option of the knowledge to know which suits his best interests, for example. Um, But what we we tend to do in football, and, and we've already spoken about it, players get paid a lot of money and they're expected to understand the meaning and the value of money from the age of 18, 19, 20. And there is no way that you can understand the value of money at that age of your life plus you also have um you know you are focusing on playing and, and achieving and and getting the best out of yourself and 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 there again you end up having people around you who you think you can trust or you you, you know you would like to think you can trust thinking that they've got your best interests at heart but you don't that that isn't always the case but I
1: think that, that's also a discussion in itself isn't it because yeah, it so is. <coughs> when when you were a player so I remember being at home me and my brothers would have agents knocking on our door nearly every week we'd have letters coming through the letterbox um, for example when when Darren was at Watford and I would uh, just been signed pro at Luton in one week I think we must have had about 14 letters um, <coughs> asking to sign us both I think Going back to what Brian has said about consciousness. So when I I did my research, as I said, the initial driving force was clearly football. It's what I knew. It completely consumed my family. And so therefore I wanted to impact what was close to me. Um, Obviously, as I started to do my research beyond that, that's when it became very apparent that this goes beyond the game of football. Um, But you could predetermine to an effect some of the answers you would get from some of the players because they were all all being given the, the same information throughout their growth period in the game. Um, what this comes down to is giving them the capabilities to make conscious decisions with information they're currently not being provided with. So if it is financial prudence, financial awareness, if it's brand, if it's social media, simple things like networking. Um, Mark Hunter, um, who's head of the uh, Athlete uh, Development and Welfare in the EY Personal Performance Programme, is constantly speaking about his experience from going from Olympic gold, Olympic silver and knowing that for him his power came from networking Um, the reality is you speak to most players and they are scared by the prospect of having to speak to somebody outside of their circle um, and also probably don't feel like those people deserve to be spoken to now we need Sorry, to i need you to clarify that so when, what like does that was... mean so that that feels what i mean by that is that a lot of players are being told that they are on a pedestal and they live within this sphere this bubble
2: yeah, yeah they're, they're ring-fenced so by
1: story. that what happens then quite and, and this is an organic process and you can understand how it happens when you're being told that you are fantastic and you, and you deserve this and you deserve that your your perception of other people is is devalued and that's from that can be from the chef to the to, to the kit person some of the ways that you would at times hear some of the guys speak to these people is is not advisable um but it's the it's the cultural acceptance of what goes on within the game and so what we need to do is, is be mature about it, but challenge what the level of acceptance is around what is appropriate, what's not appropriate, and what information is important for people to grow dynamically without detaching away from their sporting performance. Does the manager not have to take some responsibility
2: for that? I can think of some managers that simply wouldn't tolerate that, would they? Well, listen, um, problem for a manager, and y- y- you know I sympathise because I, I remember... I remember talking to a manager about um, about a situation that was going to be six months, nine months in the future, and he said, I've got to win the next five games, yeah. or I'm not here. So I think you have to take that away. I think what we're talking about is situations that have to be club-owned. You know, so as much as, you know, you can talk about having a sporting director. You can talk. I think they have to have processes and procedures in place that can identify where players might need help. I mean, it it in in effect, when you are a footballer and and, and you know, Scotts alluded to it. Everything's done for you. You're put on a pedestal. So it's not. You don't do it consciously, but because you might be earning twenty thousand pounds a week you will look at somebody who works in the kitchen and, and, and you look at them as though they're there to serve you. I think that's the point you're trying to make. Everything is pumped into you because people think that's the way to treat them. That would be at the top end of the game, though. No, no, you'd, I be, you'd be very surprised. You'd be surprised in that that's the mindset that players are given because they, they, the, the idea is to get them in a room and they don't have to think about anything else. The only thing they have to think about is performing. And if you think about it, when, when you're in a competitive situation, that's what, you, you know, you want your team the best, so what are you are gonna, you know, if, you, if you've got a load of cows in a field, you're gonna try and make sure that they get the best food stock because you want to send them to market, don't you? So it's exactly the same. It doesn't matter whether you're playing in League Two or the Premier League, you're going out on a
1: Saturday and a Tuesday or Wednesday to win. So it doesn't matter if you're getting paid 100 grand a week or 100 quid a week your ambition is still to win a football match and that's that's the cultural acceptance of what goes on in the game it goes back to your original question mark around what prince williams had to say um you know you are a commodity and there is a life cycle to you as a commodity within the machine of football the reality is that it's, it's an unspoken subject and so people are being surprised by the fact that when like me you have to retire physically at 25 or you can keep playing like my brother Darren is until he's 40, nearly 41. Um, The shock is just as great as it is, no matter how sustainable or how successful your career has been.
2: Yeah, I mean, it it is literally like PTSD, you know, um, post-traumatic stress. I remember my brother came out of the Navy and um, he'd been in there, I think 10 years or so. And when he came out, he struggled to adapt. And it's the same thing. Uh, in 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 sport, because you're no longer there, you're no longer being idolised. It does lead to a lot of issues, um, and and we're just starting, I think, to kind of recognise this. Um, you you have a lot of time to sit and, and think about what should have been there, or how people should have been helping, you, what processes should have been in place. Um, but you know, the prince is right. You are literally like a commodity you know and if you're not good enough you're cast to the
0: side well very much so with a lot of those academy players and i mean i travel to a lot of lower division clubs and i see these ranks of you know young players wrapped up in their club branding shuffling down corridors and i'm i'm afraid i do think as they go past me well uh, uh, what one leg of one of you 20 is going to make it? I mean because the the numbers are absolutely like that. Get them in. hope you've got a little prince in there you can brush up, but the chances are
1: most of those guys are going to be out the door. yeah I think I think the game's definitely changed a lot in this I would say the last 10 or 15 years. I mean when Brian started you know if you're in if you're in the youth team, you'd have a decent chance of getting into the first team because it was very transactional in terms of if you're good enough to be here, kid. You're good enough to be training with the first team. When when I started to to play, you know, I'd i agreed a contract before I left school. Mark, I was going to be a professional footballer. That was it. I'd seen my brothers become professional footballers. I was never in a place to challenge it, but it was really difficult to get in the first team. Um, I think, and you, if you remember the days of the ITV sponsorship, there was a bit more money in the game, um, and therefore you really had to do well to get into the first team. And then, if you remember, then sort of mid sort of 2000 2005, Nearly every kid was getting a game because the squads couldn't afford to pay anyone much money um, and you were getting quite a few appearances under your belt. Whereas now you've then had another transition into the the under 23s um, where they're now keeping kids because they need numbers. And the reality is what we're doing now is not keeping kids until they're 19, 20
3: and then telling them they're not good enough. We're keeping them until they're 23. this is legacy
2: from um you know sometimes people not thinking things through um and about the lasting effects of you know because let's be honest we we talked about kids having the badge on and you know sometimes i've seen it where they've got like 20 kids they're all the same everybody's very proud of what they're doing but uh, you know and and the and the parents buy into this as well by the way you know they they're totally sold on it so parents
1: contribute they they're, they're, they're the largest contributor to attrition to fall out in sport so up to 98 percent of those that fall out and no longer play sport is down to parental pressures that's a that's a, an alarming statistic
0: you, you're talking about the meal ticket thing here i was remember Correct. chatting to a to a um a a youth team coach from Santos, and he, he was giving me the example of a young Brazilian kid who was moved 2,000 miles, didn't just take mum and dad with him and brothers and sisters because he was too young to be supplanted to them, but both sets of grandparents went as well. That's one hell of a pressure to place on a child, isn't it? You have to make it because you're going to lead all
1: these guys to greener pastures. Well, I mean, you hear it quite often, don't you, now, especially players from overseas, their brothers or their fathers that are their agents, Um, while on one hand I can understand that because you're keeping it close to yourself, on the other, you know, you need to question what the driving force is behind it. Um, I've played with players in the past that on payday, all of a sudden 95% of their salary goes out and it goes to the family and again that's cultural understanding but based on what Brian has said. Um, You know, the work that we're doing globally um, is fascinating in that respect. um, and, and, and we spoke about why it's important EY are in this space. That's one of the reasons. When you're approaching this and in any sport, you need to understand you're given the cultures the respect it deserves, but also giving you yourself the the skill capability of of impacting what the challenges are. And if, if you're unable, unable to do that at the, at the scale that we are, it's very difficult to change the narrative that's currently being used and sustained within sport, especially football. Hold that Thought.
0: Let's see the thoughts of a man who has, well, certainly player care at heart, uh, extracting peak performance, a true sports science pioneer. I recently met up with Manchester United's former head of performance between 2007 and 2014,
4: Tony Strudwick.
0: Well, probably as good a place to start as any is your your current role with the,
4: the Welsh FA. Yeah, current role, Mark, is uh, head of performance for the Football Association of Wales so essentially that that encapsulates working alongside the coaches uh, head coach ryan Giggs and the two other assistant coaches, planning and preparing and and uh and monitoring players around the first team so Our current campaign, going into our current campaign now, we've we've got European qualifiers, so that's big. So all the planning and and organisation and and trying, you know, making sure we get the players in and and making sure we look after them and and, and keep them right from a performance perspective. Because essentially the modern day player demands a, a level of service in terms of what's delivered. In terms of the quality, and and of course they get they get good services in their clubs. So, as an organisation, Football Association of Wales, like other international federations, make sure that we try to give them that quality level of service they get in the clubs from a sports science, from a nutrition, and you know we we take our own chef, and you know we stay at you know good good facilities with good training facilities. So, uh, you know, what we're trying to do is is minimise noise in the background and and set them up for success from a performance perspective.
0: I mean, from your point of view, is it quite nice to be able to be subjective about player care at clubs, looking at it from an international point of view? You're not as hands-on, clearly, as you were when you were at Manchester United, but I guess it's a good barometer of what's happening in the marketplace.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, the good thing is I've seen both sides of it now. So I, I, I had, a, had a brief spell with uh, the English national team and now from, from this, this perspective. So you will get, uh, you know, a number of players coming in with, 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 with a diversity of not necessarily uh, support systems, but, you know, we've got... You know, 30 players in the system play, ranging from players at Real Madrid to, to, to players in the lower league so that kind of player care support will be very very different so yeah I think what's been great for me is is making sure that I can connect with and as is another part of the role connect with key stakeholders at the club to to identify what the requirements are for the players so so yeah from that perspective you, you can get a, a little bit of a subjective stance of what's going on in, in various clubs I it
0: kind of begs the question uh, you know once you are playing career and i guess with respect fizzled out and you'd moved into coaching how you came to specialize in this area as opposed to you know the traditional coach out on the field what was it that led you down this avenue and what why your thirst for it because you clearly love this area of sport
4: yeah, well, actually, my career fizzled out really quick at probably about the age of seventeen. I was 17. being,
0: I was being discreet <laughs> and careful and making sure I didn't get a thickie. Yeah,
4: no, brilliant. I mean, so, uh, so clearly, I mean, I, I was one of them that was never quite good enough. But, but in you know, as a youngster, really, really enjoyed the academy experience, and I had a brief spell at Colchester as a boy, but never going to quite go. So, the next best thing for me, Mark, was was to, to 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 find a way to stay in in football because that was my passion, and it always has been. And uh, so I then went to Loughborough University, so I stayed on. And, and fortunately, my my journey was a little bit different. I mean, I had aspirations, you know, to want to be a footballer, be involved in football, but I also recognised that, you know, you have to have the talent that goes with it. So uh, I think I had a lot of desire, but not the talent. So, so I went to Loughborough university to, uh, university to study sports science and physical education. I had three wonderful years at Loughborough. It, it, it was fantastic and it was great because essentially we were training three times a week we were playing twice a week and it was almost like an extension of, of being a footballer but you got the academic bit as well and and of course at the time Lapa was thriving they had some terrific uh terrific sort of uh lecturers and research and uh, you know as, as an elite environment you couldn't go further away from that so that was my route into the physical sports science and that took me over to America, where I had a spell coaching, came back, did a masters, and then, and then luckily got a position with Liverpool John Moores to study a PhD in exercise physiology with the late Professor Tom Riley. And then beyond that, uh, what then came up was my first opportunity with Gordon Stracken at Coventry City back in nineteen ninety nine. So,
0: so, so why you, you're clearly very enthusiastic? You're clearly very. Passionate about this. Uh, I mean, why this angle as opposed to pure football? And what is it that you get out of this? You obviously feel part of the the process because it's a long, old, selfless yeah. role at times, isn't
4: it? Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, I think the passion the passion was the football. That was the, that was the first start, and I think it was a natural progression for me to do the sports science. And and of course, when I came in uh, twenty over twenty years ago into into professional football, it, there wasn't a lot of sports science. That, available so for me you, you go down two routes you can go down the sports science support practitioner support or you can try and be a coach and you know invariably the the demand for coaches and you know or ex-players going into them kind of roles there wasn't that many roles around mark so I made the decision that the the football was the first passion that the, the sports science or having a passion to want to improve performance and that was what it was about and that's what's great about you know, whatever the the brand of sports science that's currently on offer at the moment, essentially, when it started out twenty thirty years ago, it was around using science to to improve performance, and I think that we we shouldn't deviate from that. And I think that was the the great thing about how you can use you know objectivity or uh, or science to really drive human performance. And I think that piece is is still what I really enjoy. I love working with 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 athletes, and I love you know trying trying to be at you know, in there, hands-on, trying to make a difference from a performance perspective.
0: Well, I know you know him because he was at West Ham when you were there. I mean, clearly game changes from a player's point of view, certainly from a physicality point of view. I'm always fascinated by the dynamic between somebody in his kind of position and the manager, that their objectives are the same. Clearly, to extract peak performance... But there might be times when the manager desperately needs something out of a player, and the head of performance might be saying, "Well, do you know what? I could oh. do to hold him back a week."
2: Okay, well, I, I can give you my, if you want, I can give you a u- unique insight personally. And, Go for it. And, and basically, it's it's around this. When I was at Sheffield United, we we got promoted. Which time? Uh, First time, because we're going back a long way now, and this this is kind of bolts onto where Tony's coming from. We. um we, we it was the old first division then so that's how far back it was and um we got promoted to the uh, premier league and uh found it difficult that season to say the least we we had four points at christmas and um one of the things that we had in dave bassett was it it created a a real kind of siege mentality around whatever we did we we You know, we had a sports psychologist in with us at times, trying to, you know, cement some sort of like thoughts around the team and everything like that. And then one of the things that was a real game changer was we brought in a guy called Ed Baranowski. And Ed came in and started doing strength conditioning work with us. We had individual programmes. They looked at the um, the, the the nutritional side of it as well. And this was before anybody was doing it. And I, I know that for a fact. Um, it's not that well documented, but it is true. And um, what happened was, over the course of the second half of the season, we were blowing teams away. So we went from four points at Christmas to like finishing about 12th. Um, and, and it was a famous sort of like picture of our first game of the season. We were having our Christmas party on the programme. So you've got, you know, we've got our new kit on with Tinsel for the next season. But the, the point of it was, was that in, in that period of time, as soon as you start getting results, results are worth points. So, you know, Harry kind of, we, we had a designated time, so it never stepped over um into where the the you know into where the training was we did that on top of what we were doing obviously very basic compared to what we're doing now but you know that for Sheffield United was fantastic because all of a sudden we were doing things that some of the bigger teams weren't doing and funnily enough Ed then went on to work for Blackburn Rovers so Ed was down at Blackburn when they won the title. And he worked with that squad exactly the same. And they were the same, they were running over teams. And that's what we were doing, you know. I mean, we beat Tot- Tottenham Tottenham 6-0 at home. We beat Chelsea 5-0 at home. And people weren't, you know, they, they weren't, I mean, the margins are so small now because everybody's doing the same thing. But that's where, you know, that's the benefit of of buying into what Tony was talking about. Seems so obvious now, doesn't it? Anything to extract small, marginal gains.
1: It's it's actually a great way of talking about it because when we speak about the other side of life for footballers, for the the purpose of this podcast, um, when when we've historically spoken about developing them as individuals off the pitch, there's always been a massive element of resistance because we, we were unsure how much or if it would take away on the field. Now we have research that shows actually by doing both, it will enhance the physical performance on the pitch. As well as preparing them for what's next. So you can understand from a psychological aspect why you know Sheffield United doing this has changed things. It um, changed things dramatically for them in that season. Um, but even when they were winning, you can still see until they started to win there still would have been teams out there and said oh, I'm not doing that that's tosh that's that's no good we're not doing that
2: was it it was i mean the older pros never used to want to buy into it yeah. because they didn't like the idea of doing weights and, you know the pain and all of that kind of thing and um, you know again uh, it, it 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 becomes a mindset you know and i know I know that because when I moved to Leeds, I stopped doing everything because again, I thought I don't need to do any extra training. I've made it as a professional now. And these are all, learn- these are all learning steps. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I stopped for the first year, I stopped going and, you know, I stopped having these sessions twice a week and so on. And and at the end of the first year, I, I, I was with my brother and we had an argument. He says, look, you need to, what you need to do is you need to get hold of some of the issues that you've got at work. And don't bring them home and I, and I had a good think about what he was saying you know because we're very close and I, I thought right brian you've got to strip down you got to go back to what you used to do to get you where you were and i started going on my own so i started going to train on my own tuesdays and thursdays at don valley and um it's funny because tony Milicello this is the was the athletic yeah 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 in, yeah, yeah. In, uh, so tony minutes yeah in, in sheffield. sheffield sheffield yeah sheffield, of course yeah. Used to play, so tony Milicello, this is how long it, he was his ex-wife would they would he was training her then that's how long ago it was so i was we tony Minicello went on to be Dame the olympic exactly yeah. coach, exactly exactly yeah. exactly so i was going there at four o'clock on a tuesday and a thursday and then i saw very quickly it affects everything because all of a sudden now it was the missing part of my training routine and I could see myself physically getting stronger. I was getting quicker and, you know, I'd take my top, top off in after the <laughs> game and, and one of the coaches, like, commented on it, you know, and, and it, it, it was like, the lads found it funny, but what happened then was I then, you know, a couple of lads said, oh, I'll come down with you. On oh, how come that, and I can mention the names. It's like it became a, a bit of a standing joke. But I, I started going down. It was me and Rod Wallace would go down together, and then, you know, the next person was Chris Fairclough. Then, you know, Carlton Palmer, John Pemberton, Gary Speed, um, and and um, it, you know, and then and David Le- David O'Leary came down, and 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 that's you know that season we finished fifth at Leeds, and 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 and. and um, what had happened was there was literally half of the squad were going down for this extra these extra training sessions. It still wasn't introduced to the club. So, like, the manager wasn't buying into it at the time, but he was happy in the end for us to go and do it in our own time, which we all were because we were seeing the benefits. This is amazing. So the players were taking
0: complete control. Control, absolutely. Ownership.
2: Absolutely, and... um so, so then what happened was then the season after when Howard lost his job
0: Howard Wilkinson Howard, for those yeah, that sorry
2: Howard Wilkinson lost his job and David O'Leary was still at the club but I think he was retired but he was recovering and when George Graham got the job he recommended Ed so then Ed was working with all the young players that they had the, um, the, the group who were sort of like came through like Woodgate and Kewl and all of those so this was what 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 you get when you're training very well is a serious feeling of euphoria and well-being, and and that is you know that's when you you, you know you you feel like your body is in sync with everything. It's like you've your senses are heightened and and everything like that. And and it, it, there is a there is a doubt when I say a downside, but I don't know if we're going to have time to go on to that, but. You know, it it all oh, when when you're talking about the mental well-being of 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 players. When you have trained like that and you are like that, and then it's over. There needs to be a support network to support the fact that you were. You know, it's like having a gladiator, and um, you know, all of a sudden he's. You know, that's where he wants to. That's where he wants to die. In effect, he wants an honourable death. I don't want to sound macabre, but you know what you're saying is, you know, there's all this pent up. You know, you 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 become wired differently, I think, as an athlete, um, because you have to be. You have to, you know, your senses change because of the training that you do. And um, you know, if we're talking about men, mental health, and once you're out of that, you, you've you've created a Ferrari, but you haven't got a track to put it on. You know and, and and that unfortunately is some of the downside of the support network that we're talking about in a in a different view to what we're talking about with regards what print the prince was talking about
0: quite frightening actually quite frightening that 20 years on from mm. that experience 20 oh gosh no leads winning mm. the title 25 years yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness yeah. gracious me it's quite frightening isn't it that you know, what he's describing there, really doesn't seem to have changed over a quarter of a century. The game, though, has changed beyond all belief. And as if to prove this, while we're hearing from our next excerpt from my trip to go and see Tony Strudwick, I want you two to have a little think about when the Premier League first started, how many overseas players were in those first team lineup? You think about that, we'll have a listen to Tony Strudwick. Do you think there is a danger with modern sports science that you're not, hands-on enough and I mean uh, literally with human beings and feeling your way through their scenario rather than too much database.
4: Yeah absolutely and I, I think you know I, I'm, I'm quite vocal about this is that I, I think the nature of I mean when you look at the, the number of students coming out into in sports scientists uh, the number of courses that are available, I think there's, 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 you know, I think that 12,000 students every year that are coming out into the industry. So it's it's a saturated industry now. And I think the experience that that, that coming through the university is very much, it can be very much data driven. And I always say that when I first started, it, it was very much touch, feel, intuition, and it was relational based coaching as opposed to making decisions and, and working with and through numbers. So we we had some mantras at uh, Manchester United where, you know, I believe that you can have high technology um, and high touch, and what I mean by high touch is you've got to have that personal piece with it with the athlete. Because for me, coaching sports it's about connecting with an athlete, and you while you've got to find ways to to communicate with them, you can't base everything on numbers and spreadsheets because we're dealing with human beings. So essentially I've always been on that and I love the high technology staff, the GPS and all these kind of, you know, subsidiaries that really had sort of arisen over the last few years about how we can monitor and manage. But invariably, as, as you, we've seen with great coaches like Sir Alex Ferguson, it is about high touch. It's about building relationships. And there's as much information in the blink of an eye and that intuitive grasp than, you know, hours and hours in front of a computer.
0: Yeah. And the danger as well is that if these are graduates, youngsters new to the marketplace, mm-hmm. they're always going to go with the hard evidence because yeah. they don't want to make a mistake in their first sort of opportunity.
4: Yeah, and no, I, think, I think the other thing is that the, the the tools that are available to these young sports scientists are very different to what we had 20, 25 years ago because essentially it was around a touch and a feel and, 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 and having that intuitive piece around where this athlete's at. Now, of course, with modern technology and GPS and more in-depth ways to analyse an athlete and more invasive strategies to say where they're at, I think there's a reliance for you to to to, to default back to to relying on, on the tours as opposed to relying on your eye and your coach's intuition.
0: Right. Before we get into what Tony Strudwick was talking about there, foreign players when the Premier League first started. What's your number, please, Scott?
2: Go on, I'll, let, I'll let Brian go first. He's
0: the Have a guess.
2: Can we say under an amount?
0: No, just give me a number. Stop prevaricating. Oh, you're going 15. You're going... I would have said 37. It's 13. That shows how how English football has changed over the last quarter of a century. There are only 30. Did you look at my
3: iPad there? Are you cheating, Brian? No, no, no. I'll
2: tell you what it was, was. Was that you'd bring in a foreign player because he would offer you something different. And he had to be... He be- had to almost be the best person in the team to do something a little bit, whether it was to open a defence, you know, like somebody like uh, Zola. Do you know what I mean? You'd bring them over. You wouldn't, if there wasn't any point in bringing over somebody who wasn't going to affect your team.
1: Plus, I think that stats underneath his. In the Guinness Book of Records, I underneath, who's the first Premier League goal scorer is Brian Dean. How many foreign players were there? Is it first? seriously? No, I'm joking. So no. that's where it's stuck in his head? <laughs> yeah. no, I, God, I knew stupid. he wouldn't have that. To <laughs> have. No,
0: no. Now, listen, what about what Tony Strudwick said there? You know, have we gone too heavily weighed in the direction of sports science? And you hear my point as well about the young graduates entering the market. First opportunity, you're going to go with
1: hard science over... Gut intuition, aren't you? Yeah, I think I think there's um, several several aspects to that comment by Tony. Um, you know, when, as as an example, back back in my day, uh, when I um, was a professional, I fractured my uh, scaphoid in my right wrist, which for a goalkeeper is a pretty serious injury. Um, I would still be, uh, I would still be cleaning the big baths. I would still be sweeping the changing rooms. I would still be, you know, carrying the dirty kit from the first team. Because as as a club, they believed that it was better for me to have jobs and to be busy rather than not. If you look at the game nowadays, um there are very few clubs where even even the kids are cleaning boots. Um So I think if from that from that aspect, they're they're trying to do as much as they can for the kids to try and get the best out of them physically on the pitch. I think if you look at what we're talking about, which is the the more holistic view of of the people, of the of the individuals, um that's one of the driving factors that we've as to why we've introduced technology for the personal performance program, what it enables us to do is to have a face-to-face touch point with the athletes because it's very important emotionally to create that connection of delivery. Um, We spoke about it um, at the beginning where there is a them and us syndrome in sport. And if you've not been through it, you don't understand it. And that's what creates that social divide. Um, Again, that that topic comes up quite often. Um, But at the same time, by introducing technology, we're not able to lean upon lean upon statistical information, which means that those stats, that information cannot be diminished. They can't be downplayed because if we know that the participation of athletes is this, if they're being given that information, if we are giving them that viewpoint beyond that rainbow of sport, we're doing enough or at least we're doing something so that if things do go wrong that further down the line, we know as a sport we have contributed to their dynamic growth and there is information and statistics to back that historically in this space we've never had it and it's always been emotionally led and therefore we've also never been able to look at retrievable statistics on performance um yet and yet when we're looking at brian's performance on the pitch for example data is more or less what drives everything we do within for the next week so it's understanding that emotionally towards the person and the physical performance on the pitch and how important they both are at the same time
0: i wonder if You know, with everybody, as you say, pretty much being at a similar level now, give or take, you know, the bigger clubs can afford more up to date technology and all the rest of it. I mean, I had somebody say that Marcello Bielsa at Leeds United now earlier in the season had his players out collecting litter from around the training ground because he wanted to give the boys much more of an old world sense of being together with all the ground stuff. So are we going, uh, do we start to marry people going in the opposite direction now?
2: I don't know. I, I can't really. Would that it, work, modern day I, pros, I, right? I think, Out you I think what you've got to do is you've got to find a way of creating characters. Yeah. That's what you have to do. Yeah. I think that it's becoming a soulless situation um, and, and the better players have that little bit extra, a little bit of niggle and and so on. You have the, uh, a lot of, you know, if you get a lot of the South American players, the top South American players come from very deprived backgrounds. um, And it's that, you know, that want to kind of be successful, to get out, to get your parents a new house or whatever. But do you you think that's where motivations have changed now, Brian, from when I was a kid, especially, and you,
1: you say to a kid now, do you want to be, why do you want to be a footballer? And I know for me and my brother, we always had the dream of playing together yeah. like you would yeah. at Wembley yeah. and playing for your country. Yeah. I think now what what is t- termed as success in an eye of a child is very different because they're looking at the money, ah. looking, looking at social status. Yeah. You know, you look at the, the applications for British universities last year against Love Island. There was a highest application rate for Love Island than there was for British universities. And that tells you culturally something's incorrect um, because they're looking at fast track success and it's the same with football now players you speak to players they want to be in the first team straight away they want to be earning 20 grand a week there is a you don't become elite overnight it's the same in any walk of life if you want to commit yourself to something then you have to prepare yourself and you have to train yourself it's the same as why i'm doing my phd with loughborough university currently because if we can have information we need to make sure we've got relevant information and i'm tooling myself to be to make better decisions for my personal growth and my career in football it's no different and yet now and we've touched upon it the narrative that's being used is quick term quick success managers I can't think about six months time I need to win today and so that's where this this discussion point needs to needs to change um, but going back to what Prince William has said it is a business and there are huge financial implications for what is deemed success in different leagues How can we counterbalance that? I I don't have the answer, but I think it's something that needs to be addressed.
0: Um, Well, one of the players under Tony Strudwick's care for a short while at Manchester United was French forward Louis Sahar, who also played for Fulham, Everton, Spurs and 20 times for France. And he joins us now from the south of France. Louis, paint a picture for us 20 years ago when you first came to England. What what was player care like? Who looked after you? Um,
3: I have to admit that uh, it was a, a big jump because I come from uh, another country, and uh, so my agent uh, at the time had a little understanding on the on the English market. It just started, so you can imagine that it was a bit uh, of. Um, Discovery. There is a lot of things that you have to think about. It could be, I don't know, or just finding a house, uh, finding a, a way to pay your bills, or, or to get the, or to get uh, uh, things sorted in terms of uh, tax and, and, and all situations. So look after. It's difficult to ask the club, and the same times after they 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 done all the things uh, that they can imagine, like maybe helping you to identify areas where you have to live and all that. But that's was not very um, a complete offer, I would say. So it was a bit uh, left uh, to us, really, uh, my family, uh, and how to adapt as quick as possible. You know, when you try to learn a language, uh, um, and at the same time try to settle with a uh, new teammates, it's like uh, yes, it's a lot of things to to do at the same time. So I can say that 20 years back, it was really. Uh, Yeah, really, really difficult. And uh, I think maybe right now, uh, people are a bit more aware. So clubs are trying to get uh, some kind of uh, clear care organisation in some ways. But uh, it's way far from uh, effective, I think.
1: I think on that as well, Louis, you would have been an extremely young man at the time, coming over your family. You know, that's incredibly intimidating. And then, of course, you're expected to perform at the highest level. I mean, that that pressure, um, realistically, is unsustainable for anybody, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it is hard because, uh, you know, anybody who can think that professional players who are 20, 23, maybe 25, they're still babies, you know? We have to be adults in an industry where there is uh, fame and... uh, and pressure and all that—it's uh, enormous uh, ask—and uh, and basically uh, you're allowed to make mistakes, uh, as like uh, anybody with a uh, degree could be a doctor, could be any anybody in their own industry. They have time to settle and understanding. They go from one stage to the other uh, to to get uh, the senior kind of uh, status. But uh, football players straight away at this young age uh, thrown on 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 this with. Uh, uh, I would say, um, personal stuff to solve still. Um, but yes, maybe the luxury of like, getting the financial uh, um, yes, uh, repercussion, which is, uh, which is great, but uh, it only lasts maybe uh, 10 years. So if you're not clever in the way you pick the right people around you to make those choices, you get your, yourself in trouble. So yes, it's, uh, it's a really difficult moment into your career where it's very exciting. But at the same time, there is a lot of uh, things to to think about, and uh, as you were uh, aware, all of them who played the game. Um, yeah, the main main focus is uh, it's about scoring goals or 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 stopping them for Paul. Um, from all others um, uh, on different positions, is to keep your place and try to maintain the the level of. Uh, of games and uh, performances you want to, 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 to play. And so to get that all right, it's really hard.
0: This is an area that you're very passionate about. You've got your foundation, Access Stars Network. How does it work, Louis?
3: Um, Access Stars is a digital platform for so right now, the digital era that we are in allowed um, communities, I would say like, uh, I would say special uh, audiences to uh, to be uh, um, yes configured in a way that uh, can protect uh, all the, our interests. So basically, uh, staff, when they go inside, they have the chance to um, create a profile with their interests um and by by that it could be uh I don't know, real estate could be uh sport it uh, could be uh cinema a- anything that uh, they're really into it um and basically we uh as an organization have the duty to put uh, in front of them only trusted uh partners so in different fields it could be brands for special product or exclusive uh, items i it could be uh, uh companies as well on the sponsorship side where Sometimes they're looking for ambassadors, uh, partners, so it's, it's easy to, to find uh, a virtual way to be represented um, than just like uh, waiting for your agent to call. And uh, the last part is the most important one is where you have experts. So on the financial department, uh, audit uh, um, could be uh, expert on, on many many different fields that can help you uh, during your career and during uh, the moment in life you you really need. So basically, have a curated uh, audience for for your special uh, needs. It's very important and and uh, that's what we provide because uh, during the. My career, and during the lot of uh, career of my my teammates, uh, I could hear the same stories, the same problems, and no real solution. And actually, to have that tool in your hand, um, uh, 24/7, uh, where really, really you need it, uh, without having like a lot of noises around you, like agents or 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 just friends or cousin giving like you the noise and the actual advices or different advices, it's really hard to make a choice. So let's try to to create something that is like easier to, to track and when the the staff have the opportunity as well to rate the services, it's a very strong tool to uh, maintain the level of uh, transparency and uh, and long-term relationships.
1: So we've spoken before um, around the work that EY is doing with the Personal Performance Programme. Um, clearly, as you said, this has been a long-standing issue. Um, that, that element of transparency and independence is is vitally important. Um, I think you'd agree for anybody uh, to know that they've got that comfort of of discussion or advice that they're receiving. Um, how important do you think it is for us to be entering the market to offer global sport um, this type of provision?
3: Yes. Um, so, sorry, maybe some part was missing, but uh, I, I guess uh, pretty much your question. I think here uh, uh, I program that. Uh, uh, I've been introduces uh, introduced. It's, uh, it's uh, very important in a way that uh, you know, massive uh, corporate uh, who's got uh, massive expertise uh, in in so many fields with the companies uh, they, they've been working with um, to to get into the, the sports department and and understanding the actual issue and the way to address it with uh, with this program. It just, uh, it's just uh, it's it's amazing, and uh, I'm really uh, behind all the the effort uh, is put um, into it because yes this is the way forward and when you have companies who got uh, as well a very strong cross border experience they understand basically the differences between countries they understand as well the necessity to have like uh, yes a very uh, big reputation so having like big brands like big companies like this uh, throughout that uh, that issue is uh, it's very very important and uh, yeah, I can be more pleased.
0: And, and finally, Louis, how do you think the, the mental strength and the resilience of modern-day players has changed?
3: Uh, I do uh, un- understand that uh, basically nowadays the actual challenge for, for, for players uh, is to, to get uh, around all that pressure uh, all that, uh, yeah, the, the environment, the social networks, and all that—it's—it's—it's it's, it's really difficult to to keep your focus and and all sort of uh, challenges that you may have. Mm. So this environment, uh, I would say, has changed over the years. Uh, it was not the, the the same before, where the press didn't have uh, that much access. I would say, um, I, I, I do think now to have uh, all that discussion with. Uh, with the industries, you know, it could be the PFA, it could be, um, you know, the, the association or federation and all that. Uh, it's it's crucial because, uh, yes, uh, the, the players or the athletes in general um, um, represent a, a massive uh, way. To, to get, um, uh, I think, the message across, you know, transparency, the values that we are now a bit missing in our century. We want uh, those uh, people who actually are actually uh, beneficial to your community uh, be helped to, to work properly. And, and I think EY and I will be behind uh, trying to actually achieve uh, uh the the best uh with uh, the potential that we have um yes it's it's very important and uh, i think in nowadays uh it's crucial to to get that message across uh, everywhere and this is where i think uh digital's got uh, uh some like uh, i would say uh, yeah difficulties to to control but on the same time it's very powerful so if you do it right i think uh, it could be an enormous uh, impact and helping not only uh, players or sportsmen but uh Yeah, anybody.
0: Well, I'm afraid we have reached our allotted time for this podcast and Scott and I still have loads we want to discuss with Brian Dean. And we've still, of course, got to hear more from Tony Strudwick. So rather than cut this podcast short, we're going to make it a two-parter. So for the time being, I'm Mark Clement, brought to you by EY, building a better working world. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Blood, Sweat & Fears, the ultimate podcast with a focus on athlete experiences, readiness and preparation for life in and out of sport. Look out for part two. Goodbye.